This episode of Salmon Trout Steelheader Podcast is brought to you by Lamaglass Fishing Rods, and there is a new development in the SI and G1000 Pro Series Spiral Wrap Baitcaster Rods for Salmon and Steelhead 10.5 foot in either 8 to 12 or 10 to 20 line rating. Learn more following. Welcome back to the Salmon Trout Steelheader Podcast. This is exciting for me. This is the type of episode that I started this podcast for, and thank you all for carrying us to 100,000 downloads uh, on podcast apps, wherever you do find them. I appreciate it. Tell your friends about the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast, but today I have a guest. You know, really, should I even call him a guest? This is the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast, and this is the man who started Salmon Trout Steelheader. Mr. Frank Amato is with me today, and we are going to be talking steelhead. So hello, Frank. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, great. Happy to be here. Yeah, so like I said, of course, Frank, uh, the uh, the founder of Frank Amato Publications, Salmon Trout Steelheader, of course, published hundreds of books, magazines like Great Lakes Angler, Fly Fishing, and Tying Journal. But uh, Frank, what would you say? When it all comes back down to it, I think I've asked you this question before, and it's a little interesting about kind of your all in if everything conditions and run was perfect what would be your favorite fish and fishery to chase well ever since uh, I was I hooked my first one which was uh, steelhead I'm talking about uh, that's been my favorite fish yeah and uh, it was a mystery fish until I saw my father with one that he caught out of Johnson Creek when I was in the second grade my cousin Charles and I, and uh, we saw that fish and and uh, fell in love with it. It was, of course, dead. He had caught it in Johnson Creek, which is a little tributary, comes down out of Gresham and empties into the Willamette River in Oregon. And uh, at that time, we decided that uh, as young boys, we wanted to pursue steelhead and see where it would lead. And uh, course we didn't have really any equipment we didn't live on a steelhead stream my father was reluctant to take me fishing for fear I'd fall in and drown yes cousin Charles had it even worse because his dad probably didn't even know what sport fishing was and uh, he ran a vegetable uh, operation in uh, selling uh, produce in southeast southeast Portland my father at the time worked for uh, for Meyer and Frank, or for Fred Meyer in the yeah. produce department. But anyway, we were just a couple of little uh, kids in Southeast Portland, and so uh, I started riding my bike out to the park in uh, along McLaughlin Boulevard by East Moreland, and found little fish there that kind of looked like baby steelhead. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until about oh, maybe eight years later when my parents moved out of town to uh, Milwaukee when I finally was able to fish on my loan on my own for steelhead yeah yeah and then so what what year would have that would that have been when you first saw your dad with a steelhead well, I was uh, I, I would say it would probably been, it would have been about 19 uh, 1950 thereabouts wow. a little after the Second World War. Wow, and uh, did did you have any insight um, into into kind of 
the the numbers of Steelhead and the run in general, did you, was there much common knowledge about that at the time as to how many as Steelhead a, as were a around? As a kid at that time, I really don't remember any common knowledge of, about fish. And yeah. The one thing, though, I was, grew up in southeast Portland, close to Powell Boulevard, and uh, there was a grocery, there was a sports store there. I remember we used to go and buy hooks. At that time, you could buy, you know, single hooks, a penny a piece, or something like that, and uh, salmon eggs. And uh, we became a regular customer of the particular sporting goods store. Forget its name. It was right on Bell, yeah, about two blocks from uh, Cleveland High School. And uh, with those hooks, we started fishing a little creek in Milwaukee and using little pieces of worm or pieces of uh, bullheads or mud daubers yeah. or crawfish. And uh, we started cooking small cutthroat trout and small baby steelhead or smolts if you prefer. Yeah. And uh, so that was really our fishing life. And I'm talking from about the age of about... Uh, 10 to maybe about uh, 14. Yeah. And with once we got bicycles, we started to get around a little bit and uh, started to open up things to us. But still, it was only like, you know, Johnson Creek and Kellogg Creek, and yeah. that was about it. Although we did ride our bikes out the Willamette, up the Willamette, and south of Oregon City, trying to look for streams mm-hmm. that we could fish. We saw, found some streams that had carp in them and that was it. We tried riding our bikes out to Carper and we discovered the Clackamas and uh, in summertime we could wait it. We could fish with a single egg for the fish there. And then by that time we were in the sixth, seventh grade and uh, we'd fish from Carver upstream wading the river and occasionally we'd hook a fish that would break off and which we never saw and at the time we didn't know that they were jack salmon, but they were either jack salmon or, hmm. or early coho that were coming into the stream. Yeah. We just knew that, wow, that was a big trout. Yeah. But the trout mainly at that time were all wild, and they ranged in size from about maybe uh, six, seven, eight inches on up to the largest we ever landed was probably about 18 to 19 inches, which was actually a big trout. Oh, yeah. But they were rare. Mm-hmm. So that's... That's when you kind of graduated to a larger river, and then from there, I would presume, you know, once you had the ability to drive yourself around, that must have changed things dramatically. Yeah, it, uh, I, I got a job when I was a junior in high school, working in the grocery store, and the pay was good enough so that I could actually buy a car. I think I was, I don't know if I was getting a dollar and a quarter an hour, or two dollars an hour, but my... Dad steered me into a 52 Chrysler Fluid Drive, a blue car. Mm-hmm. Central Catholic, where I was going to high school, they called it the sludge or the sled, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it had a funny transmission where when you step on it, it would start moving, and then you'd have to let up on the gas, and you'd hear the engine go click or the transmission, and then that meant it. It, it was into drive. <laughs> And it, but anyway, it was a great car. I had it for quite a few years, and I took that car to the Deschutes, to the coast, to the Deschutes, and uh, got a lot of uh, good miles on it. 
52 blue uh, fluid drive uh, Chrysler. That's great. Yeah, the, that you know that opens up uh, a world of possibilities, especially in the Northwest. I want to take a moment to thank Lama Glass Fishing Rods for sponsoring this episode. Uh, there is one specific bit of no- news that you guys need to hear about. Uh, Lama Glass has two new um, options, or rather four options, but in two different series for a spiral-wrapped baitcaster, which means that those guides are going around the blank, which means that the line never touches the blank and has a very smooth, even power uh throughout the blanks which is especially helpful when fighting and tiring out fish um, these are available in the SI series in an 8 to 12 and a 10 to 20 10 foot 6 uh, those are available right now at lamaglass.com of course the SI the flagship series but also the G1000 Pro which has the cork handle also has an 8 to 12 and 10 to 20 10 foot 6 coming soon so keep an eye out for the spiral wrap bait casters, they're pretty wild looking and they work uh, phenomenally. And, and some of these bait casting guys, especially over in the Great Lakes, they swear by them. And so it's an excellent option. Um, and kind of going back to that, you know, Frank, you have spent, you know, so many decades here producing salmon trout steelheader content. And you worked with Lama Glass going back quite a ways. Would that be with Dick Posey? We got introduced to uh, Lamaglass Rods through a fellow named uh, Bill Loosh. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bill was one of the originators of the Northwest Steelheaders, or one of the founders. And for a long time, he was president of Northwest Steelheaders, as well as on the board of directors of uh, National Trout Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Bill was mainly a gear fisherman, and he loved to fish for uh, Chinook particularly. But he also fished a lot for steelhead. He gave clinics and shows throughout the Northwest on uh, gear fishing, yeah, bait, drift fishing, that sort of thing. And so uh, when I met Bill, I was uh, just using you know whatever rod was available, gear fishing. But half of the time I was fly fishing, and honestly, I thought more about my fly rods than I did about gear rods. Mm-hmm. But I was introduced to uh, lamb glass I think through Bill Loosh and I still actually have some of the, uh, they're probably 50 years old now or 60 years old now some of the original lamb glass rods and the one uh, reputation they had besides being being uh, a good rod to catch a, a big fish with was that they never broke, virtually they never broke. Mm-hmm. Other people would sometimes use, I don't know maybe uh, different engineering techniques or less uh, glass or less uh, graphite fiber mm-hmm. and they theirs would break They'd be, they might be lighter and they might have a little different action but so lamb glass was just kind of solid uh, hardcore working man uh, working man quality and, and yeah. over the years uh, I guess it was uh, trying to think Dick Posey? Yeah, Dick Posey. Yeah, yeah. Dick, Dick Posey built a really great product. And uh, so, yeah, it's was, it was great. Yeah, and, you know, looking back to a lot, a lot of those vintage Lama Glass rods, it's pretty incredible. I mean, the uh, attention to detail, of course, using um, 
you know, the, the rod builders that they had and everything and building those incredible blanks. But also they had some techniques like with certain series, uh, I think it was called the G500 or something. It was an unsanded graphite blank, which was still light and sensitive, but they didn't sand off fiber on it. And so it was really tough. And then, you know, like the G1000, they just had a, a nice, um, a nice thick enough wall to be durable, but still sensitive and lightweight enough. And they just struck that balance. And of course, there's always times that, you know, you can go into those very light, you know, really sensitive graphite rods are great, but that's what I really enjoy about like the uh, G1000 Pro or the Redline series from Lamaglass is they, they just bridge that gap between durability, working man's fish, fishing rod, as well as the performance and uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the equipment sure has changed throughout the years, I'm sure, that you've seen. And so when you were really getting into steelhead fishing and starting to travel to other rivers in southwest Washington and such, what did you, uh, what techniques and, and how was the equipment back then and how would, have, how would have been the fishing in, say, the 60s or, or 70s? Well, I kind of took a big swerve when I started fishing for bait from the time I was, uh, you know, probably like eight years old until I was probably like, oh, 14 or so. And, but then we started reading in Field and Stream Sports Field about how you could catch fish on artificial flies, fly fishing. So we started dapping flies in Kellogg Creek and with our short little rods, because Kellogg Creek was only about 12 to 20 feet wide, and every once in a while we'd have a, you know, trout hit that fly, and we were always amazed that they would come and take something that uh, you know, didn't have any meat on it, so to speak. Mm, yes. But we uh, quickly found out that fly fishing was uh, very effective, and by the time I was 16, I had taught myself how to Gash the fly and tie a fly, and uh, and once I had wheels, I had opportunity to get to the best river that I've ever fished in the entire world, as far as I'm concerned, and that was the Deschutes. And when I say best, not in the respect that it provided the most fish or the biggest fish or anything like that, but simply the fact that I found it to be the most fun river to fish that I ever fished and in a way the most challenging because of uh, the multiplicity of situations it presented weather wise uh, uh, holding wise uh, stream wise uh, temperature wise every which way climate absolutely a gorgeous uh, river and it was in eastern Oregon only 100 miles from Portland so fly fishing became my passion and the first passion was fly fishing for trout and naturally uh, you know in the Deschutes you could occasionally catch trout up to 17 18 inches rarely to 20 and so uh, after I caught a couple of them and learned that a steelhead was nothing other than a trout that had gone to the ocean and mm -hmm. uh, gained uh, anywhere from five to ten pounds in a year or in a couple of years in its journey I decided okay I got to fly fish for these fish, these uh, migratory rainbow trout. And that opened up a new world and it became a religion for me. So when you started discovering steelhead, was there already, um, 
a lot of well-established info in terms of timing and where to go. And you, like, could you go to go into a tackle shop and they tell you, okay, middle of September through October, you go here. You know, was there pretty established information where you could start making educated guesses, or did you have to kind of just run into them? Well, by the time I started going after steelhead, and that was when I was essentially 16, I had a car, and so I could drive. And there were no summer steelhead within bicycle distance of where mm-hmm. I lived. And so uh, it was a matter of looking for information. And the newspapers, the fish and game columns, they occasionally would talk about uh, places to fish or have fishing reports, but not anything really about technique. So I went naturally to the library to find out information about how to fly fish, uh, what flies to use, how to tie flies, where to go to look for steelhead, and, and uh, information about camping out, all of that. I, I, I started using the libraries, and I discovered uh, by my freshman year in high school uh, a reader, a, a writer from British Columbia called Roderick Haig Brown. Yes. And he not only talked about how to fish for steelhead, but like me, his passion was steelhead fly fishing too. He was uh, about two generations older than me. He was probably 60 and I was maybe 15 at the time. And I fell in love with the way he wrote, his conservation and his ethic of returning fish and uh, being responsible for the way the rivers were treated. But not only that, but he also talked about the flies that he used and he talked about of different techniques, but mainly he, he had this philosophy of uh, treating the fish and and uh, experiencing the whole day of fishing and everything around you rather than just the concentration on killing a fish to eat. So that was uh, how it started. That's wonderful. And then, of course, Frank then uh, continued to completely build upon that passion that he had been searching for in the library to thousands of magazine issues and hundreds of books produced now, educating, you know, Frank, for me, when I got into Steelhead um, and I was learning with my friend Marlon Lefevre, we, we learned on the river, but he also gave me an education in Steelhead completely through Amato Books and Amato DVDs. And that was what we were doing. And I was learning, and he's handing me your float fishing techniques for steelhead book, the mm-hmm. um, that one that's more Great Lakes oriented. Mm-hmm. I learned a ton from that. Of course, the Bill Herzog books, um, the DVDs, watching those, um, you know. And so you took that curiosity and then turned it around by publishing and being responsible for this massive concentration of incredible fishing content. And when did, when did that idea start rolling around in your head? The idea germinated as far as starting a, a, a magazine when I was probably like a, a, a junior or senior in high school. I was working in a grocery store. It was a small chain of 10 grocery stores around Portland called Kino's. And during our lunch break or our lunch hour, the owner of the store, the manager, would let us take magazines into the lunchroom. As long as we didn't mess them up with our bologna sandwich, we could read them and then <laughs> replace them out on the newsstand. Yeah. 
And uh, so I would take in field stream, sports field, outdoor life, uh, fishing, hunting news, whatever was out there on the newsstand. But there was no magazine that concentrated on the western United States or even Oregon or Washington. There was one magazine out of California called Western Outdoors, which had hunting and, I believe, fishing in it, too. But uh, I thought, well, if I ever got an opportunity, I would like to start a magazine. And uh, so I went to uh, college to become a uh, teacher. I wanted eventually to teach history and get a, a uh, master's degree so I could teach in college and uh, specialize in Italian and church history and at the same time maybe get a job in a small college close to a steelhead stream on say the Oregon or Washington coast. And I love how so, that's a priority. <laughs> so I, that's great. I, I, got a job. I, I went to University of Portland and my wife helped me get my way through school and uh, I worked at uh, this grocery store at the same time and still always thinking in terms about starting a magazine but to actually practically practically make a, a living for me uh, I, I decided I would get a teaching degree too in, mm -hmm. in history so I got a master's degree and got a teaching certificate and uh, I couldn't get into a junior college, applied to a couple, but I didn't have any teaching experience, so they wanted me to uh, you know, come back when I had a year or two of, of maybe high school teaching under my belt. So I got a job at Central Catholic High School, taught there a couple of years, and decided that uh, I would start the magazine. I, I, we were able to scrape together a few thousand dollars, my wife and I. So the first issue came out in August of 1967, and it covered uh, Oregon, Washington, and uh, a little bit of California, a tiny bit of British Columbia at the time. Mm -hmm. But I got some really wonderful nationally known writers. Roderick Haig uh, Brown was one, correct? Roderick Haig Brown. He, uh, did he write the Will the Chinook Take a Fly? Exactly. He was my hero. That's, that's hanging right above us here. Frank and I are in his office, and, and I actually just looked above his head, and that is that first issue with the Will the Chinook Take a Fly. That was actually the very first episode of this podcast. I read that one. Amazing that thing about that, that cover. I mean, this guy is the Mark Twain of fishing, right. isn't right. he? Is that a good comparison? or? And that, that is a perfect comparison. And yeah. The amazing thing about the cover that you're talking about, the piece of artwork was done by a, a high school senior at Central Catholic. Really? And he also designed, I think, our, our logo for Salmon Trout Steelheader. Yeah. And uh, that would have been like 1967. And uh, I asked him specifically to illustrate the article of Roderick Haig Brown's, Will the Chinook Take a Fly? Yeah. And so, because it was, you know, after I I'd caught quite a few steelhead by that time, but I was, I'd never really fly fish for Chinook. And, and everybody said, no, they won't take a fly. You know, the only way you can catch them is on with baits or gear and stuff. Yeah. So uh, Roderick Hake Brown explained how he had been taking Chinook on flies. And so I asked him to write an article, and he most graciously uh, accepted and did it. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it just grew from there. And then, uh, yes. you know, of course, a family uh, a family business, and I'm I'm thankful for you know what Nick and Tony have done and continue to do but uh, I think it's uh, 
it's really cool to be able to kind of discuss some of this stuff, especially, you know, you're, when you're producing a magazine and proofreading and manuscripting books with people, I mean, the amount of fishing information that has gone through your brain uh, is, you know, it's it's massive. And it, it is. And, and uh, the other thing is, you know, that's how the fly fishing end of salmon trout sealhunter came about because of my personal interest in it. Yeah. And particularly in fly fishing in relating to anadromous fish, because we knew, all knew that they, trout would take flies, but not necessarily anadromous fish. But what was interesting was after the first couple issues of Salmon Trout Steel had come out, I met a fellow named Bill Luce, who was a longshoreman on the Portland docks. And uh, Bill had a passion for steelhead fishing and also salmon fishing. and the Northwest Steelheaders were giving a clinic in the Mayflower Milk Auditorium in Portland, Oregon, by the Ross Island Bridge, and uh, they asked me if I wanted a booth at the clinic, and I mm-hmm. said, yeah, that would be great. And so I was demonstrating our magazine, which is at that time maybe one or two years old, a couple issues had been out, and people came up and, and were buying subscriptions and everything, and then I happened to notice that a guy named Bill Luce was giving the talk, the to presentation to the audience. There were probably three, four hundred people there. Mm-hmm. So Bill took the stadium, had a blackboard behind him, and uh, drew a picture of a, a worm and a picture of a, a gob of eggs and a steelhead and yeah. started talking about how you fish for steelhead with uh, eggs, with bait, with lures. And uh, he was he was the con- the consummate gear fisherman, yeah. and uh, and he had also great sport ethic, and and was uh, all for saving the rivers and, and saving the fish. And so I watched the crowd of you know a couple hundred people watch Bill uh, in breathlessly as, as he was demonstrating different techniques with the rods and reels and I thought uh, geez I gotta talk to this guy about writing a book about what he just presented to the yeah. people so after after the show was over I said Bill you know why don't you put that down on a piece of paper or you know give me a manuscript and we'll make it into a book so Bill called me up a couple months later and he said Frank it's done <laughs> so I That's went over to his house in North Portland and I had for you know I hadn't told him that it needed to be typed and double spaced and all that, and he had it uh, in a notebook and uh, he had written it out in longhand, exactly the way he had delivered it in in verbally there at the Mayflower. Yeah. And I took it and I said, man, you know this is really great, Bill. Uh, I'll have somebody transcribe it and then we'll get it typeset and you know, we'll make a book. And so the first book we published was called uh, uh, Steelhead and Salmon, or Steelhead, Drift Fishing and Fly Fishing. And he wrote the drift fishing section, and I wrote a section of the book, maybe 20% of the book, on fly fishing for steelhead. And that book was virtually the first kind of comprehensive book that came out about that type of fishing. There just wasn't hardly anything else. There was a little book that came out of Seattle. I forget who did that. I think it was an Enos Bradner or somebody, an outdoor mm-hmm. writer up there. Yeah. And uh, that was it. And 
our little book went on to become a bestseller in the only place there were steelhead, including yeah. in the Great Lakes. That is that is excellent, and it's you know I think about it, Frank, and it's like you know with a lot of this online digital stuff we're doing. At the end of the day, it all comes down to getting. Um, you know, unique information about these unique fisheries and not just recycling old news. I mean, um, you've had some phenomenal writers over the years um, and even published a few of my articles in, in a yeah. book. <laughs> and uh, well, the it's, it's thing wonderful. Is that, you, you know, know, every fisherman that's out there is out there to learn, yeah. essentially, and to be excited by what he catches and then to be satisfied to take home a nice rosy feeling in his mind and stomach about, you know, the day and the weather and the rest of it. And a lot of those people turned out to also want to share their experiences in the printed word. And so they would write me occasionally saying, gee, you know, I'd like to write about this aspect of the sport or that aspect of the sport. Everything from writing about drift boats to uh, tying flies, uh, making rods and just all of the interesting things that go into fishing mm-hmm. and uh, so we ended up probably publishing close to 300 or more different books on aspects of steelhead and trout fishing over the years including also some books on warm water fishing too yes yeah that's yeah. The, that's the interesting thing is there's a wide range in all of these you know that are that are still available in print are on amatobooks.com, A-M-A-T-O books.com. Those are all those Frank Amato publication books, and uh, you know, Frank, it's wonderful to get together with you. I would like to, uh, um, you know, do another episode or, or something with you soon, or maybe go fish and do some of that stuff uh, before before we end this uh, podcast episode. And I want to say thanks to Frank, and then thanks to Lama Glass uh, for making this happen, and. Uh, so right now we are in a bit of a flood stage at the start of steelhead season. And I kind of want to start out by kind of giving you my theories and thoughts and then see what your response is to this. So when we have these flood events, especially right now when it's at the start of the season, I do know of some fish being caught. There's always some pilot fish, whether they're wild or hatchery, coming in by now, December, you know, early December. And we have this huge flood event. And then it's going to start dropping back down and we're going to have high water, you know, conditions coming back down and however that all plays out. But in this early part of the season, and actually I think many times throughout the season with a flood event, I feel like the first fishable day, unless you're in a hatchery situation where the fish are kind of milling around near a hatchery or weir, Mm -hmm. but the first fishable day as far as like a lot of wild fish goes isn't necessarily the best day right away, even if that water's starting to get green and there's some juicy runs. And I kind of get this feeling um, that that is largely in part to any steelhead that are in the main stem before the flood are going to utilize the littlest creeks that they can, even if they're not spawning there, move up into a little bit safer areas until that river calms back down a bit and then return to the main stem. Would you say that in a high water event, fish utilize creeks more than people think, especially winter steelhead? Yeah, I, I think that's really true. It, we there was a study done on the Umpqua River a few quite a few years ago concerning the habits of summer steelhead that would come into the uh, Umpqua 
in North Fork Lumpwa, and they tagged the fish, and they would recapture the fish at intervals in different parts of the river. And the, these fish would come in, in, in uh, mainly in July and August and September, and they wouldn't spawn until uh, April or May of mm -hmm. the following year. So six months, they'd be in the stream for almost six months. And they would definitely move around in the river, and they had a tendency to move up the river, and, and even though they were going to be swanning in tributaries downstream, some of them would go way up the river, just to probably to find comfortable holding areas mm -hmm. and, and uh, places where they might pick up occasional morsel. But then when it came time to spawn, they'd go back to... Uh, the tributary that they had come from yeah. to go up and spawn in it during the regular, you know, spawning time. But fish are really strange, and it's just uh, they have an incredible memory for. I think it's probably the smells in the rivers, yeah, and also the navigation of, of stars when they're in the ocean mm -hmm. to to uh, find their way back to us. It's yeah. just... Uh, and magnetic those... magnetic information like that yeah. that Wild Steelhead book you were... Uh, that you published yeah. by J.D. McPhail, was yeah, it? Yeah, McPhail. Yeah, you were saying that the magnetic... You know, they're very attuned to the magnetic feel of the Earth and can find their way back. And then once they get closer to the spawning tributary, rely more on their sense of scent. And yeah, that is really interesting. You know, especially rivers that have a, a summer steelhead and a winter steelhead... Um, component they often have multiple variations of that and I think a lot of people don't understand that summer steelhead do actually spawn oftentimes during the same time range as the winter steelhead mm -hmm. and and I have seen that in southwest Washington exactly what you're talking about with the umpqua where these fish would you know maybe ride spring flows up to higher sections of the river and canyon water that they could stay cold in during the mm -hmm. summer, but then once the water came up, they might hang out there for a bit and then may move back down river to a river that supports summer steelhead spawning. And specifically in these southwest Washington rivers with waterfalls, they're utilizing the waterfall areas during the lowest flows of summer, mm -hmm. but then spreading out to very different spawning areas. So, yeah, that's what I love about steelhead is I feel like they will utilize the watershed they're not just going straight up and straight up and straight up. There's this misconception that they're just heading for their stream, and then once they get there, they're good. I feel like they will use other parts of the river that have no relation to their spawning area in order to kind of have the best protection and security. I've seen it where, you know, gone up into the headwaters of a river and there's steelhead everywhere, and then the next day, the water drops, and they're nowhere to be found, and they're not sitting there spawning. Now, if they were spawning, they might have hung around, yeah. and they might have sat in shallow water where people could see them because they're already on a red. That's different. That's when they're going to stay put. But when you have a fresh fish that's a month or mm -hmm. multiple months away from spawning, they're just going to utilize that watershed in the best way they can. And so, Well, they're amazingly complicated. And uh, when you think in terms of the historic salmon and steelhead, population on the northwest Pacific coast, it's just amazing the numbers of fish that utilize the ocean and all of these streams around us, and how over the hundreds of thousands of years, they developed all of these important spawning uh, 
paths and circuits out in the ocean and uh, now it seems like unfortunately so much of that has been disappearing because we probably over harvested a tremendous amount of the wild fish that uh, we shouldn't have. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly of the big fish because we can studies have clearly demonstrated that the size of the Chinook of salmon along the Pacific coast is substantially in our in our lifetimes mm-hmm. have gone from maybe an average of 30 pounds of fish down to like uh, 17 or 18 for particular species like uh, yeah. fall Chinook and uh, but we didn't know that those things early on a lot of people suspected that they were true and it's just like now with everybody talking about climate change and the fact that there's too much carbon in the world and that the earth is uh, going to possibly have some really negative consequences from all that carbon an awful lot of people are poo-pooing it but an awful lot of people poo-pooed releasing big salmon and yeah. uh, big and, and we get what we manage for, and yeah. we didn't manage for wild steelhead and wild salmon. Yeah. Now we're not really managing, even though scientifically we have the facts, we're not managing for long-term survival of the earth. So yeah. that's kind of a negative way to look at it, but mm-hmm. uh, people have got to realize that if they want good things for this earth, they're going to have to sacrifice some things. Absolutely, and uh, you know that's what we're it's what we're up against. And in this current cycle, you know the trend of steelhead has not been great. But I'm thankful for the ones that remain, and, and hopeful yeah. for you know better ocean conditions. And then yes, you know, thank God because you know the Atlantic salmon have been hold, holding on in the British Isles. Yeah, but barely, but still, you know they're they're holding on. They're reproducing. Good. And uh, the Northwest, I got my fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, they are a resilient creature, though, as well, you know, and (coughs) yeah, and we've just got to make the most of it. Um, But, uh, you know, pleasure talking with you, Frank. Thank you so much for meeting up with me today, and uh, I'd love to do it again soon. As as one of the people that's uh, contributed so much to salmon trout sealer i want to thank you lucas for doing that and writing and uh being a real strong spokesman for uh the, the future health of the fishery and uh thank you because it means so many to so much to it's literally millions of fishermen not hundreds of thousands but really literally millions whether they be in the great lakes or along the, in the pacific coast but uh yeah yeah, from California to Alaska, that's a wonderful, wonderful habitat out there in the Pacific, and we've got to make sure that it doesn't burn up and, and uh, turn into a nice warm pond for tropical fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Well, I appreciate that, Frank, and you know, I've been uh, fortunate enough to meet a lot of uh, the listeners of this podcast, and these are people that are in the same boat as you and I where we just think about steelhead way too often and we want them to survive and uh, um, you know it's uh, for me having you know a lot more limited time steelhead fishing I have seen good years I have I I was lucky to have seen some good years in the 
especially 2012 through 2015, were pretty solid, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's been it's been really tough, and we're still getting after it and fishing hard and finding them in some interesting places. You know, they'll surprise me every once in a while. Well, there's much been made about people searching for uh, the uh, chalice and uh, or the uh, the vessel that Christ celebrated uh, is. Uh, his life in and the chalice for fishermen I think is steelhead and salmon no fishermen (laughs) will think uh, bass and Mm -hmm. and maybe bluefin tuna or whatever but when I look at that uh, nice bright steelhead I think that you know that's the ultimate uh, the ultimate thing I've, I've, I've told many people that in my in my opinion, my humble opinion, steelhead are God's favorite fish. You know? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, that's right. Just my opinion, but I feel like St. Peter would uh, right. enjoy flipping a Well, a it's, kind of, it's kind of funny yeah. that way because in the Middle Ages, in England and Ireland, and probably France as well, yeah. monasteries would oftentimes be built right alongside salmon streams. No way. So that when the salmon came back, uh, whether in the the 9th century, the 15th century, 17th century, they could put a, uh, they would have a weir across the stream, divert a few fish for the table in the monastery, and pull the weir and let the rest go up to spawn. That is great. That was uh, common, very common in uh, France or in England and Scotland and uh, Ireland, and it, I'm sure it happened in France as well. France and also the lowlands. That is a piece of fishing lore that uh, I've never heard, and that is, you know, there's so little yeah. written about that time anyway. It's interesting to even think of them. Well, it's interesting it too when, when you think of it yeah. because, because the person who initiated fly fishing for trout in a way, in the modern era, which mm-hmm. I say modern era from the Middle Ages to where we are now, yeah. was a, a English nun, her name was Dame Juliana, and she was a prioress of a uh, abbey in England, and she copied the insects and tied the first flies that we know of were yeah. used specifically with the imitation of a fly at least in English-speaking countries. Yeah. In Italy, in Roman times, Romans were, and also Greeks, were tying little flies that looked kind of like gnats and, and uh, out of wool and natural substances and using iron hooks to uh, fish, fly fish, in effect. Wow. In uh, the streams of uh, Greece and the Yugoslavia area and all in Italy, up and down the Apennine Mountains, because there were trout all over. They were all brown trout, and then also marble trout. And uh, so the, the, the history of these fish that we love is entwined in an incredible amount of really fascinating history that uh, a lot of us aren't aware of. But Yeah, uh, they've been there the whole time. There are Italian books, and I'm sure... In, we know there are English books on the fly fishing subject, but there, there's this one Italian book. Unfortunately, I can't read it, but the thing must be like two, three hundred pages long about all of these different, uh, you know, fishing things that happened in Italy in far past centuries. No way. And, that would uh, be incredible. Yeah, but you can imagine a person just 
these, these little streams that come down from the Apennines in uh, northern Italy, and the Apennines are like maybe 500 miles long as far as a mountain chain, and they're high enough, and they carry a lot of water, and they have tons of little uh, of, of uh, brown trout. Wow. Yeah, big big brown trout. The native too. range. Yeah. 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 So anyway, fly fishing goes back a long way as does you know gear fishing. Yeah. Well, this is so good. I appreciate it, Frank. Uh, yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Um, go ahead, check out salmontroutsteelheader.com. As always, get your uh, digital subscription going, read up on some of the articles, and, of course, amatobooks.com, Amato Books, all of those incredible books published by Frank Amato here himself. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Frank. Okay. Have a good night. Thank you, and good luck out there. Yes, sir. Okay.